And good morning to each one of you. Uh, this past week, I traveled to uh, New Orleans for the annual annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I I attended a number of interesting papers and and presentations. But over the course of the entire conference, there was one phrase, sentence that really grabbed my attention. It was in a paper presented by Peter Beck, who is a professor at uh, Charleston South University. And in his paper, he quoted Jonathan Edwards, who penned the following. Uh, it would be greatly, it would be greatly to the advantage of our souls if we understood more of the excellency and gloriousness of God. It would be greatly to the advantage of our souls if we understood more of the excellency and gloriousness of God. It is exactly what I needed to hear at the time. I'll take it a step further. It's exactly what I need to hear every day. I'll take it a step further. It is exactly what you need to hear each and every day. It would be greatly to the advantage of our souls if we understood more of the excellency and gloriousness of God. Uh, we, we, look, we look to so many things uh, to try to bring happiness. We, we seek it in so many different places. We go down... Uh, so many different avenues, and more often than not, it's futile, it's a futile search, and all the while, uh, what it is we need above all else uh, stares us right in the face. It is a, a greater glimpse of the glory of God, a greater glimpse, as Edwards expresses it, of the excellency and gloriousness of God. And so that's what I want us to do today. I want us to turn to God's Word. I go back to John 17, which I expounded last Lord's Day, and focus in on one little phrase that Christ employs four times in his high priestly prayer. And I want us to meditate on that one little phrase and extract from it a fresh glimpse, a fresh appreciation of the excellency and gloriousness of God. We find a little phrase for the first time in verse 2 of John 17. Christ declares, since you have given him a reference to himself, the son, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's the little phrase. All whom you have given him. All whom the Father has given to the Son. What does the Lord Jesus tell us about that group of people in this verse? He tells us that he gives them eternal life. That's known as 
regeneration. A regeneration, a word that in the original literally means new birth, a new genesis, a new beginning, new life. He has given us this life by the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us and by virtue of that indwelling brings us into fellowship with the Lord God Almighty. So there's the first instance in which the phrase is used, all whom you have given him. What do we learn about these people? Christ has given them eternal life. Look with me now at verse 6 for the second reference. Christ continues, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So there it is again in slightly different language, with the same intent, with the same intent in view. Here clearly in verse 6, the Lord Jesus refers to those whom the Father had given to him. And in this verse, what does he tell us about these people? The very first phrase. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now that's known as illumination. The Lord Jesus has given these people eyes to see and ears to hear. He has given them spiritual enlightenment whereby their foolishness has been replaced with wisdom as they now see the resplendent glory of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a third reference. Look with me now at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. That's now the third reference. In the first reference, what do we learn about these people whom the Father has given to the Son? We learn that the Son has given them eternal life, regeneration. In the second reference, we learn that the Son has manifested God's name to them. That's illumination. And now in this verse, again, Christ makes reference to those whom the Father has given them. What do we learn about them in this verse? We see something of Christ's intercession. I am praying for them. I am praying for them. And he makes four wonderful requests. Father, keep them. Father, sanctify them. Father, unite them. And Father, glorify them. And there's a fourth reference. We've looked at verse 2. Considered verse 6, we've glanced at verse 9, and the fourth is found in verse 24, still in John 17, the words of the Lord Jesus, Father, I desire, not as in wish, but as in will, I will, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Regeneration, illumination, 
intercession, and now glorification. The Lord Jesus is praying on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. His desire, his will, his longing is that we may be with him so that we may behold the glory which the Father gave to the Son even before the foundation of the world. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So did you notice that little phrase? Four times in John 17. The word slightly, slightly different. But the meaning precisely the same. In this prayer, John 17, for that matter, in the entire upper room discourse, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, Christ has a very specific group of people in view. Those whom the Father has given him. It is extremely important that we comprehend that. Uh, Very important that we grasp it. Very important that we understand to whom or of whom the Lord Jesus is speaking. Uh, If we don't grasp it, we will enter into all sorts of confusion. Uh, We now have two dogs at home. Some of you know that. We have a beagle, five, six years old. And we now have a half lab, half springer spaniel, two months old. Our beagle is struggling. She is struggling with the confusion. Because as we utter commands to our young pups, sit down, come here, do that, stop doing that. uh, our, Our beagle thinks we're talking to it. And so we'll tell the pup, sit down, she sits down. Well, tell the pup, come here. The other dog comes here. See, she has not yet grasped to whom we are speaking, to whom we are addressing these commands. So, too, there is so much confusion when it comes to God's holy word. So much confusion when it comes in particular to John chapter 17. Of whom is Christ speaking in these verses? Well, from his own lips, he is speaking exclusively of those whom the Father has given to him. And from that simple statement, we derive one of the most significant doctrines in all of Scripture. It is simply this, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. Those whom the Father has given me. Now, right from the outset, let me share with you four very important truths concerning this doctrine. First of all, The doctrine of election, or what we might call God's gracious choice, is immutable. Fancy word for unchangeable. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Unchanging unwavering. God's gracious choice is immutable. Secondly, God's gracious choice is unto salvation. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine, Paul writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The third important truth, God's gracious choice is according to God's will. 
Paul makes that clear. In Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The fourth important truth. God's gracious choice is for his own glory. Or as is made abundantly clear in Ephesians 1.6, it is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, I know, and I, will, I won't pretend otherwise, I know that this is a difficult doctrine. I tread carefully this morning, I really do. Uh, the doctrine of election is an extremely difficult uh, doctrine. It, it, it's very important for us to remind ourselves that as we approach this truth, um, we're not, we're, we, we dare not approach it as a puzzle that we're trying to solve. And we dare not move beyond the boundaries of Scripture. Uh, we approach God's Word. We seek to hear God speak through His Word. We use that reason which He has given us under the guidance of the Spirit of God to discern what He tells us in His Word. We dare not move beyond that. Because it is true that at times as we consider what God says, especially concerning Himself in Scripture, we come to a point where there is silence and we can go no further and we dare go no further because if we do, we do so at great peril and can enter into all sorts of theological quagmire and confusion. We must stay within the parameters of God's Word, especially when it comes to this doctrine, because it is exceedingly difficult. Zophar, in the book of Job, chapter 11, verse 7, asks, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. There, Zophar, very wisely, makes a comparison between our inability to measure the universe and our inability to measure God. Was it traveling at the speed of light? Say, was it billions of years to reach what they think is the edge of the universe? That's just meaningless. First of all, what, what is the speed of light? I think in the snap of the fingers, light can circle the earth seven times. I mean, I mean the, the speed just boggles the mind. And yet even traveling at that speed, you were talking about billions of years to reach the edge of what they perceive to be the universe. Can our minds grasp that? Can we measure the heavens above? No. Then what makes us think we can exhaust a God who is infinite? A God who knows no limit. A God who knows no bound. And when we speak of the doctrine of election, we enter into the realm of the mysterious. And we do need to remind ourselves that, yes, we are dealing with something that is fundamentally difficult. But not only is it a difficult doctrine, and perhaps it is because of its difficulty, uh, this doctrine is a neglected doctrine. I will hazard a guess that most churches, most pastors wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go anywhere near this doctrine. 
wouldn't want anything to do with it because of its complexity and because of its difficulty. And for that reason, it is a downright neglected, at times, forgotten doctrine. A.W. Pink, I think it was writing in the 50s, penned a wonderful little book entitled The Sovereignty of God. Up until that time in England and Scotland, A.W. Pink was a popular uh, itinerant preacher, invited to preach at different churches, invited to preach at different conferences. The moment he wrote that book and published it, his itinerant preaching ministry was over. He died a lonely man up in the, the Northern Islands off the coast of Scotland. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And they accused him of unsettling the balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And yet Pink responded to his critics. Oh, a hundred such works as this are needed in reference to his own book. A hundred such works as this are needed. And 10,000 sermons would have to be preached throughout the land on this subject if the balance of truth is to be regained. You see, it is a sorely neglected doctrine. Not only that, I've already alluded to it. It is a controversial doctrine. I know it. I've experienced and lived through the controversy. And I'm well aware of the fact that today, the, the pop, I suppose the popular understanding of God's election is simply this, that God, God foresees, foreknows uh, those who will love him those who will choose him, those who will believe in him, and he confirms their choice, and that's what election means. That's all it is. is that God simply peers down the corridors of time. He sees those who will believe in him of their own free will, and therefore refers to them as his elect. A friend, if you follow that through, and if we reason together, we discover that such a concept of election only serves to undermine the very grace of God. Because if salvation ultimately depends in something I do of my own free will, because I love God naturally, or desire to come to Him because of something that resides within me, I have torn asunder the very foundation of grace and what it means to be saved by Sovereign grace. Paul reminds us in Romans 9. I've already read it. Let me read it again. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The fourth thing I want, thing I want to say about this, this important doctrine this morning is just that. It's, it's significance. It's, it's importance. It is of inestimable worth. We cannot get any doctrine right if we do not have the doctrine of election right. Martin Lloyd-Jones penned, If this is not understood, if God's election is not understood, then neither will the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification be understood or right. And I would argue this morning, I would submit to you this morning, that as we behold the decay of the gospel in our society today, 
As we behold the widespread ignorance of what it means to be a believer in Christ, of what it is Christ really accomplished at Calvary's cross, as we see gospel preaching just degenerating into just this storytelling and and, and this vain offer of some sort of hope in Christ without any solid foundation, we we can draw a straight line between much of that confusion and a neglect of this very doctrine, the doctrine of election. Because again, without election, we can't understand the doctrine of justification fully. We can't grasp fully what's going on in sanctification. And we certainly can't grasp our great hope, which is glorification. And now let me add a fifth point. Yes, it's a difficult doctrine. It is a neglected doctrine. It is a very controversial doctrine. It is an important doctrine. And fifth and most importantly, the road I want us to travel down this morning. It is a glorious doctrine. It is a glorious doctrine. Those whom the Father has given to the Son. It reveals that truth, that statement, as it, as, it, as it comes forth from the lips of the Lord Jesus, as we ponder all that is implied, all that is implicit to those words, we behold more of the excellency and gloriousness of God. How? In three ways. First of all, the doctrine of election, this wonderful little statement found four times in John 17, shows us the glory of God's absolute sovereignty. It puts him where he belongs. Let me rephrase that. It puts him where he is, whether we acknowledge it or not, on the throne. It shows us the glory of God's absolute sovereignty. It is but a part. Of what Paul declares in Ephesians 1.4, God works all things after the counsel of his will. These things include the heavens. There's an incident recorded in Joshua chapter 10 where the Israelites are chasing the Amorites and then they're in the heat of the battle. But the day is drawing to a close and and Joshua wants more time so that he can vanquish the, the enemies of Israel. And so he prays to God. And what does God do? He causes the sun to stand still in the heavens above, testifying to his sovereignty over the heavens. Every sunrise, every sunset, every snowflake, every raindrop, every ice pellet, testifies to the absolute sovereignty of God. But not only do these things include the heavens, these things also include animals. God led the animals into the ark. God caused the donkey to rebuke Balaam. God sent ravens to feed Elijah while he fled from King Ahab. God prevented the lion from harming Daniel. Every squirrel collecting nuts. Every robin making its nest. Every raccoon going through your garbage. Every hawk circling in search of prey. And every deer entering my crosshairs. Speaks of the sovereignty of God. He controls the animals. 
He controls the nations. These things include the very nations. Acts 17.26 God determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places. It was God who spread the nations over the face of the earth from Babel. It was God who oversaw, superintended, ordained, and carried out the rise and fall of Assyria, the rise and fall of Babylon, of Greece, of Rome, of every world empire that has ever reared its head. But these things extend beyond the nations. It even includes the calamities that beset us in this world. God declares, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I mentioned already that I was in New Orleans this past week. One cannot travel to New Orleans without thinking about Hurricane Katrina. Whose hand was behind Hurricane Katrina? Whose hand has been behind every hurricane, every tornado, Every flood, every disaster that has ever beset this world is the hand of Almighty God. It is God who creates calamity. It is God who has his own sovereign plans and purposes to bring about and to fulfill in the very disasters that beset humanity. I know it is troubling. I know it is perplexing. I know I've heard it a thousand and one times, the age-old question, how could a loving God do such a thing? That is not the question. That question doesn't even exist. How could a loving God do such a thing? It's not the question. The question is this. How is it that a holy God doesn't do it more often? That's the question. How is it that any of us are still walking the face of this earth? That is the issue. How is it that to this point in human history, a God who has been offended in ways our minds can't even begin to grapple with, yet to this day holds back his wrath against this fallen world. That is the question. That is the question that we should be asking. And that is a question that only has one answer. His patience and his long-suffering and his abounding mercy that sinners might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these all things... That God works according to the counsel of his will include calamities. It includes death. Job 14.5 Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed man's limits that man cannot pass. And so Rachel died while giving birth. Samson died while inflicting horrendous damage upon the Philistines. Sisera died while napping in Jehel's tent. Absalom died while suspended from a tree limb by the very locks of his head. You may be certain of this. I can be absolutely certain of this. We will not live one nanosecond beyond the time that God himself has appointed us. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaac Watts, 10,000 ages 
ere the skies were into motion brought, all the long years and worlds to come stood present to his thought. There's not a sparrow or a worm, but is found in his decrees. He raises monarchs to their throne and sinks them as he please. Again, appealing to the words of Edwards, he said, this doctrine, the doctrine of election, has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. The absolute sovereignty of God. There we behold his gloriousness and his excellency. But we see his gloriousness and his excellency in a second way. This, this truth of the doctrine of election, this truth that the Father has, has given some to his Son, shows us the glory of God's just liberty. Shows us the glory of God's absolute sovereignty. But so too, it shows us the glory of God's just liberty. Turn with me just for a moment to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9. Paul will help us. In understanding this precious truth, Romans 9, verse 14, he begins by asking a question. He begins by acknowledging that the doctrine of election will create many questions, lead to many doubts. And here he expresses one of them in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For, Paul continues in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Previously in the chapter, Paul has made it clear that God chose. He chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. This leads to a perplexing question. Well, does this make God unjust? Does this make God unfair that he would choose some and pass over others? And Paul responds by quoting from Moses. The quotation comes from Exodus 33. The quotation in its context is preceded by a question. Moses asks God, show me your glory. That's what Moses wants. Show me your glory. Give me me this, 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 this vision of who you are. To which God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name. So you pray, you ask me, Moses, show me your glory. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to make my goodness. I'm going to make my name pass before you. Well, how? We have the answer there in verse 15 of Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the goodness This is the very name of God. This is the glory that God causes to pass before Moses. He declares it in no uncertain terms. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. That is my name. That is my goodness. That is my glory. That necessarily implies that God's glory is his freedom to have mercy on whomever he pleases, apart from any reason, outside of his own purpose. 
Let me repeat that for you. It's a mouthful. God's glory is his freedom to have mercy on whomever he pleases apart from any reason outside of his own purpose. Well, that's not fair. That's not just. Think it through, friend. When the angels, when Lucifer rebelled, and it's that a third of the angels followed him in his rebellion, was any provision made for their salvation? No. There is no hope for the fallen angels. There is no hope of salvation for Lucifer and his minions. Now here's the question. When Adam and Eve fell and plunged all humanity into sin and rebellion, was God obliged to save anyone? No. He could have done precisely the same thing with humanity that he did with those angels that rebelled against him. It is pivotal, friend. It is pivotal that we understand this. God is not obliged to you. He is not obligated to be merciful. He is perfectly free to bestow mercy on whomever he pleases because he owes it to no one. How can God be charged with injustice? No, it is the glory of his just liberty. In his own words, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. R.C. Sproul explains it as follows. Suppose ten people sin and sin equally. Suppose God punishes five of them and is merciful to the other five. Is this injustice? No. In this situation, five people get justice and five people get mercy. No one gets injustice. What we tend to assume is this. If God is merciful to five, he must be equally merciful to the other five. Why? He is never obligated to be merciful. If he is merciful to nine of the ten, the tenth cannot claim to be a victim of injustice. Because God never owes mercy. Friend, when it comes to your standing before God, Please, friend, never plead for justice. Never ask God to be fair with you. There's only one end game. If that's your approach to God, it is eternal damnation. Mercy, by definition, is an expression of God's just liberty. If mercy is an obligation, if mercy is something that God owes to all, guess what? It is no longer Mercy. We, 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 we eviscerate the word of any significance. No, mercy by definition is tied, inextricably tied, interwoven with God's just liberty. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy because God is no man's debtor. No man's debtor. I trust we behold the glory of his just liberty this morning. And thirdly, as we ponder his, his gloriousness and his 
excellency, as seen in the doctrine of election, we do indeed see something of the glory of God's abundant mercy. The glory of God's abundant mercy. Yes, the glory of His absolute sovereignty over all things. Yes, the glory of His just liberty to do as He pleases. And thirdly, the glory of His abundant mercy. When I consider who I am and what I have done, when I consider the extent of sin in my life and how sin wreaks havoc in my soul daily, when I remember the fact that sin essentially is the desire to kill God, have you ever realized that? Let me just explain that a little bit. If I know God is all-knowing, and if I know God sees everything, and if I know God is a righteous judge, and if I know God abounds in loving kindness, then when I sin, what am I essentially declaring? I wish God were not here. That's what I am declaring. Every act of sin, sin of commission, sin of omission, is an expression that I desire that God did not exist. When I think of that, and then I think of the fact that this great God sent His Son to die for sinners like me under no obligation, when I think that His Son now intercedes for a sinner like me, And when I think that all of these blessings are rooted in this inscrutable doctrine, this mystery of of, of election. Oh, how I behold the glory of his abundant mercy. One author has penned the following. Listen carefully to this. It, it, It ties in, it ties in wonderfully with what we're meditating upon at the moment. He writes, when I was a child, My dad took us on a vacation to another country. We stayed at a motel where that evening we went swimming. Another boy in the pool pulled me aside and told me whatever I did not to allow any of the water from the pool into my mouth. If I swallowed it, he said, I'd become deathly sick. He also told me I shouldn't drink water from the tap in our room. I have some friends who went swimming in the ocean near a large city in South America. They didn't realize the sewage from the city ran into the ocean and they became horribly sick with a long-lasting dysentery. Who among us would like to swim in or take a drink of sewage? Recently, I joined a hiking expedition through the pristine woods of the southern Appalachians. Oh, the springs of water bubbled from the sides of the mountains, trickling over rocks, dancing down the creeks, and feeding into crystal clear rivers. But our guide said, we mustn't drink the water unless we boil it. It contains microscopic bacteria and will make us sick. The pollution of our environment is so great that the same germs we find in the brackish waters of developing nations are also in the mountain streams of Tennessee. In the same way, the germ of sin that we find in the most diabolical, homicidal maniac is present in your life and mine. For all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Oh, the abundant mercy of God. That He would bestow a gift upon me, a gift entirely undeserved. Give me what's fair. Give me what's coming to me. That's damnation. What I deserve is to be eternally separated from this glorious God. That my, my, my entire life from the moment of conception to the present has been constant rebellion and rebellion and sin after sin and compiling my guilt. And that this God would have anything to do with me. Completely undeserved, unmerited. But that He would choose to have compassion on me through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it is the glory of His abounding mercy. You see, you should compound that, couple that with the fact that not only is this undeserved, it was unwanted. Christ made that clear, didn't He, back in John chapter 6. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to Me unless the Father draws Him. So it's not only that I didn't deserve to be saved, I didn't even want to be saved. Dead in my sin. Reveling in my own rebellion. And how this just illuminates the glory of God's abundant mercy. You see, the leper recorded in Matthew chapter 8, he had it right, didn't he? Oh, he had it bang on. I don't know how much that leper understood about the Lord Jesus, but he understood enough. He knew his own predicament, covered with leprosy. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. No one would come anywhere near him. But he began to hear about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He began to hear about some of these signs. And so he sets off on this mission to find the Lord Jesus. He finds him. He doesn't care about the fact that he's breaking every social custom, that he he had no right being around these other people. He can't, couldn't care less. And he prostrates himself at the feet of the Lord Jesus and he declares, listen carefully, friend, to his words. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Heal me, Lord. I've been a good boy. Heal me is the least you could do for me. Take pity on my desperate situation and help me out here. No. If you are willing, Lord. No question concerning Christ's authority. No doubt concerning Christ's power. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Christ had compassion on the leper. He stretched out his hand and he touched the leper. And he said, I am willing to be cleansed. Oh friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need to empty yourself. You need to get your eyes off of yourself. You need to realize who and what you are before a holy God, that this God owes you nothing. This God is not obliged to you, and yet this is a God who is merciful. This is a God who is compassionate. And your only plea should be this, if you are willing You can make me clean. 
You can cleanse my soul of every stain. You can wipe away every sin in and through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I began this morning with those words that Peter Beck shared there in New Orleans from Jonathan Edwards. It would be greatly, oh, it would be greatly to the advantage of our souls if we understood more of the excellency and gloriousness of God. Well, I hope, I hope you understand more this morning of God's excellency and gloriousness because what an advantage it is to our souls. It stirs worship as I behold this great God upon the throne. It increases humility as I see that I am a debtor to mercy alone. Strengthens faith as I see that in Christ I have a Redeemer and intercessor. And it evokes love. I love God because He first loved me. Our Father, we do indeed this morning ascribe all the glory to You. We thank You for Your precious Word. Praise You for its clarity. Praise you for what you have revealed concerning yourself in it. Grant us wisdom for these things. Because in and of ourselves we are not able to grasp the profundity of who you are and what you have done for sinners in Christ. So give us eyes to see this morning, especially those who are here who are not believers in Christ. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Give them life, Lord that truly they might look to the Lord Jesus, might see His beauty, His glory, His majesty, and might believe in Him unto the salvation of their souls. And this we do pray in His mighty name. Amen.